Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Agent Jack Foreman. First of all, let me demystify streaming royalties a little bit, because there's a lot of people that really have some misconceptions about it. The biggest one being, why don't streaming companies like Spotify and Apple Music pay more than they do? Before I go into this, let me just say I'm not an apologist for labels or streaming services at all. I'm a realist. I'm just telling you the way it is today. I'm not advocating that it's right or wrong. Here's the big deal. Everyone thinks that they're being paid per stream. And that's not really the case. Yes, that's the way it's broken out. But here's the way you get paid. First of all, all of the money from a particular month, all of the revenue, it goes into a big pot. And then it's divided out by percentages. So in other words, if Ed Sheeran got 5% of the streams, he then gets 5% of the revenue for the month. Now from there, you'll find that labels, for the most part, will then look at their revenue against their streams, and then they'll determine, okay, this is worth X per stream. But that doesn't work out the same for everybody because, in fact, they have a different slice of the pie. This pot of money is about 65 to 70% of the overall revenue that's coming in. You might say, well, why isn't it higher than that? Well, for the most part, they just can't do it. Understand that every streaming network that we know about is losing money. Yes, Spotify actually made money one quarter, but it was more on paper than anything else. Some of that money actually goes to publishing. The rest of the money goes to overhead and R&D. Now, in the case of Spotify, there are some very high-value big offices that they have, especially in New York. And as with all companies, especially tech companies, their top execs get paid pretty high salary. So you might say, well, maybe they can cut that, and it's true. Yes, you can argue about how that money is spent, but the fact of the matter is, even that wouldn't be a huge dent in this big pot of money. So the only way around this is to make the pot bigger. Okay, how does that happen? Well, one of two ways. Either get more subscribers, or you raise the subscription fee. Right now, it's pretty universal that it costs $9.99 a month, at least in the Western Hemisphere. There are some countries that pay far, far less because that's only what the market will bear. But in the United States and most of the West, we find it's around $9.99 or the equivalent. But there's been an argument that says, well, wait a second, why can't that be raised? Because... Gamers, for instance, are pretty good with paying $10 for a skin, for instance, or for buying virtual tools and weapons for a game. So there's some argument that that could work. One of the big problems, though, is not everybody is actually paying $9.99 a month as is. Because you have student discounts, which are pretty big, you also have family plans. So you might have five people on a plan that are only paying 15 bucks a month. So you can see that not everything is totally equal here, but the big thing is if the pot was larger, then there'd be more money to pay out to artists and to songwriters. Now, Spotify does a pretty good job of actually turning free users into paid subscribers. About 45% of their users are on the premium $9.99 a month tier. 
But that being said, there's still 163 million on the free tier. So in other words, they're using it for free. And the whole question is, how do you get them to convert? Yeah, that's the million dollar question or the multi-million dollar question in this case that no one has quite figured out and they're doing their best to make that happen. Now there's another idea that's been floated and that's something that's called user-centric payouts. And a user-centric payout basically means that if I pay $9.99 a month and all I listen to is Aerosmith, then Aerosmith gets that whole $9.99. And that idea is actually getting some traction. You'll find that Deezer is going to be implementing that pretty soon. There has been papers, there's been speculation, there's been a lot of industry experts that have come at this from both sides, and no one is quite sure what will happen. So we'll see if that actually changes the dynamic of royalties here. But finally, I think the biggest thing that most artists and bands and songwriters don't understand is there's somebody in the middle all the time. So the pie is basically cut in half before it even gets to them. If you're signed to a label and it doesn't matter whether it's a major label or an indie label, they're taking some of your revenue. So you're actually generating a lot more money than you're getting. The amount that an artist gets is anywhere between 20 and 50%. So if you're at the major label on a 20% deal, they're getting a lot more money than you are. The same thing goes with publishing. If you happen to have a publisher, then in fact, you're probably only making about 50% of the total revenue that's being generated. Now, one of the things about signing to a label of any type is the fact that you're hoping that they're going to make you more money than you would make on your own. So if you're trying to keep everything, that's all well and good, but you better be able to market yourself and get your name out there so, in fact, you can make all that money so you are generating something to begin with. That's tougher than it seems because it's a full-time job just to do that. So the bottom line in all this is the fact that You'll make more money if there's more subscribers, if the money pot gets larger, and you'll also make more depending on the deal that you have with your label and publisher. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free Vocal Mixing Techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and you can download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now another thing I want to get into today is reviews and being careful where you place your trust. Now I can tell you as a reviewer how this kind of works. I used to review speakers for EQ Magazine, and this was quite a long time ago, probably about 20 years ago when I did this. But the way it worked was I was sent speakers to listen to, and eventually other types of gear as well. And I would write a review, but it would have to go to the manufacturer for fact-checking. Now, the manufacturer would usually get back and they would say something like, I really hate the way you say that if there was something that seemed like it was negative. So I get enough badgering that I kind of have to change it. The other thing that would happen is you'd also get an editor that would come back at you saying, you know, that's way too negative. 
As a result, what would happen is there would be lukewarm reviews at the very worst. If there was something that was downright bad, there's a product that just didn't work the way it was supposed to or the way you didn't think worked, well, then what happened was you just wouldn't review it. You would send it back saying, well, sorry, it doesn't fit. Now, today, when everything is online and just about everybody can be a reviewer, things are way different. And I know I even look to reviews for gear as well. But here's the thing you have to be cautious about. First of all, you have to be careful who you trust. The reason why is probably nobody else has the same setup as you, so they're probably not experiencing the gear in the same way. The other thing is most people won't be working on the same kind of music as you are. And then what I really hate is comments or reviews that really don't have a comparison. So someone will rave about a particular product, but they don't have anything else that they can compare it to And therefore, you can't really trust their judgment because they're kind of talking about something without really having a proper reference point. Then the ones that kind of bug me are the people that aren't really worthy of listening to. And there are many, many commenters online that will come off one way, but in real life will be another way. So they'll come off as an expert, but you'll find out they really have not much credibility because they haven't worked on any projects worth talking about. And as a result, what ends up happening is they can be very influential if you're not careful, influential in the wrong way. I ran into this recently where I saw a review of something from someone that was coming from the voice of experience at least in the eyes of the reviewer. And then when I really delved into it a little bit, I found out that I knew the reviewer very well. And I knew that the reviewer, in fact, had never worked on any kind of a project to save his life and yet was coming across as an expert. So you have to be careful about those reviews, about those comments, and about what you're really going to accept as fact. What I would really suggest, bottom line, is when it comes to software, before you buy anything, before you buy an app or a plugin, get the trial first and try it to see if you like it. When it comes to hardware, find a dealer that allows you to return it if you don't like it. Sweetwater is a good place to start, but most other dealers will now allow you to do that. You may have to pay for it first in order to take it off the premises, but it doesn't mean that you won't be able to get your money back later if you don't like it. But that's the only way that you can be sure of what you're getting. Make sure you try it first. My guest today is Jack Foreman, who's a senior vice president at Bicoastal Productions, the New York City-based concerts and theatrical booking agency. Originally spearheading the agency's coverage of the Western United States, Jack now oversees the core agency staff and global touring strategy. Jack provides an agent's perspective of working with an artist and provides recommendations for touring artists and bands during this time of uncertainty. During the interview, we spoke about marketing a tour, online concerts, the inner workings of an agency, some problems facing venues post-COVID, and much more. I spoke with Jack via Zoom from his home in New Jersey. Let's start from the beginning. Tell me how you get in the business. Sure. Um, well, by Coastal Productions, uh, my company been around for about 10 years or so. Um, I joined up with them almost six years ago. 
Um, I've been working with talent ever since I got into college, um, did a bit of work with the Windish Agency when I was in school, uh, which is now Paradigm. And then out of college, I uh, went right into ICM Partners in New York, which is kind of what brought me out here um, originally from the Midwest. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been working with talent for many years and little by little, I've really been able to grow quite a bit with um, my work at Bicoastal and really grow with the company and grow our roster and I've really never looked back ever since I've joined up with them. What's interesting in what you just told me there is the fact that you went to a couple of very big agencies. By Coastal's not as big. What was the difference that you saw? Uh, as much as I love the bigger agency feeling and mentality, you know, it's great to have that kind of a corporate structure behind you. I really love a smaller hands-on team mentality. Um, that's just really how it works for me. Some people probably will feel otherwise. I just know that with the way my brain works, I get a lot more out of being in a very hands-on environment, especially when it comes to our clients and the talent. You know, Getting to work with them on a much more personal basis is um, part of what I really like about it. And then the founders of the company, you know, we've gotten to know each other so well over the past six years, they become like family. And really having that smaller team has actually been a lot more beneficial for me and my growth. How hands-on are you with your acts? Depends on the acts. Some of the acts require a lot of hands-on pressure. Um, and I say pressure because some of them ask for the pressure and then some of them really need us for a lot less. Some of the acts, you know, like Lee Rocker, who's a client of ours, he was a member of the Stray Cats. You know, he, he and I do a lot of collaboration. We talk, um, you know, before this thing broke out, we talked uh, virtually every day and now we at least talk a few times a week. You know, we, we really are collaborative with him. And then there are some artists uh, like this group, Naturally 7, that we work with. They're managed by uh, Bill Siddons at Core Management out in LA. You know, he's been doing this long before I've been alive. And he's just one of these industry vets where he he says, all right, you know, these are the times. This is um, the calendar. And you guys have your work cut out for you. But we've got everything else under control. And they need us for very little other than booking the show in the in the North American territory. They even have their own agent for the rest of the world. So it's mixed, healthy, healthy mix, I'd say. When I think of an agent, I think of an agent just in those terms, where there's management, management has most of it together, and the agent just goes out and get the gigs. But if you're doing more than that, describe some of the other functions then that, that you have to do or, or you're expected to do. A lot of it, I would say, in that, it, when we're adding more than just our booking support, a lot of it's in marketing. Uh, whether it's tour marketing, which is the big one, obviously, as agents, we're always um, nitpicky and collecting ticket counts from our promoters like crazy, whether they want to give them or not, uh, because we are very concerned with tour marketing and making sure these shows are doing well. Um, so that's a big part of it, I'd say, that we're offering support in. But we're also helping in building relationships for our artists as well, whether it be with other artists that we work with, other people we know, uh, introducing them to new management and doing some of the work with their own management. Um, right now, during the current crisis, we've been a lot more hands-on with helping them produce content that they can be putting out to offer promoters and theaters that are now closing their doors indefinitely, but still want to find a way of engaging their audiences virtually. Um, so that's something that we've really gotten involved in, is helping them spearhead that campaign and uh, finding the tools to put it together, whether it's um, streaming support, streaming production. Um, a lot of people have never had to think about this before, and now they suddenly do. Okay, so th there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, let's go to the types of venues that 
under normal circumstances you would be booking? Sure. Our acts, you know, our roster is um, a lot of it finds a home in performing arts centers and casinos uh, and also festivals. However, over the years, we've really gotten a lot more diverse to work with a lot more festivals and promoters, especially in the international sphere. You know, if we're working overseas, it's mostly with promoters and less with performing arts centers. But here in the States, it's primarily arts centers, not-for-profit organizations, colleges, and things like that, where, you know, they curate a very special limited series in their building, and they're looking for a certain type of show where the audience can come in and sit down and really have a full experience rather than just a concert. But that said, there's still a mix of shows that will present in um, in rock clubs and festivals and things like that. So if you're going to give us a base, it's mostly performing arts centers and casinos, but um, there's a bit of a fringe on either side of that. How many seats would that be normally? Performing arts centers that we work with range anywhere from 500 to 2,500, I'd say. You know, those are the, or- the arts, those are the arts organizations where if you're in a city um, where there's a major, a major city, I should say, with a big performing arts center that may bring in Broadway shows, those are the types of places that we're working with. Um, clubs is really all over the board. Um, in casinos, obviously, it varies depending on the capacities of what they can present and what types of audiences they're working with. Because um, to them, selling tickets is a lot less important than bringing in players to come in and lose money. <laughs> Don't repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I want to kind of establish the way you normally work versus what's going on now, what might happen in the future. When you're talking about marketing, what does that marketing entail? Or as an adjunct to that, for an artist, what would you expect would be the limited amount of marketing that they would do? If it's coming from a team uh, where there's a lot of support, you can kind of let them drive that ship. I remember when I was working at ICM, it was all driven by the label representatives. Um, I, for instance, I was working in the urban department. Um, you know, and For instance, I'll just make this up. If we had an artist that was representing uh, RCA Records, we'd have somebody at the label who was spearheading their entire campaign. And we were taking a lot of directive from them as to, especially around the tour marketing, I should say. And there's there's a degree of that, which is still true in what I'm doing now with Bicoastal. You know, with these management teams that are bringing these artists to us, they have an idea in mind. But when it comes to tour marketing, that's where we have to really step in and monitor those efforts. Because if... If it's, if it's about where a show can really do well, then our job becomes very data-driven. And one of our co-founders, one of the partners of the company, uh, Fran Heller, she's an absolute marketing prodigy. You know, She worked with some of the biggest firms um, in the early days when it was really the, glor- the glory days of advertising and marketing. She's offered a lot of her expertise to our artists in tour marketing. That's really the area where we've helped the most. You know, When it comes to, to records and with... Um, Social media campaigns, we help with what we can, but I'd say 80% of our efforts are really based on tour marketing that helps them sell more tickets in markets that they may not have as much of a reach. Tour marketing meaning traditional as in print or radio versus social? Yeah, and even getting more creative with the current space. I mean, some of our shows are targeted to a slightly older audience and You'd, you'd never think it, but a lot of these slightly older audiences are very involved on social media. Uh, we have people that are in their 60s and 70s calling us and saying, hey, I saw your act on TikTok. You know, wow. my, my parents didn't even know what TikTok was, <laughs> um, let alone you know, my, my grandparents certainly didn't know what TikTok is. But 
it's really it's it's really interesting to see what people are responding to. Yes, print and radio are very they're very useful. I'd say radio more as an impulse medium, closer to when the show is going to happen. That's really where we see any kind of an impact. But a lot of it is just artist to fan driven efforts, especially on social media, where they announce a show and they're really leading the ship um, when it comes to their end. And we're we're just here to help with what we can. And oftentimes the buyers, the presenters, and the promoters are just really looking for any kind of help because they have so limited a tour, um, excuse me, a, a show marketing budget as it stands and they want to stretch it as far as they can stretch it. Yeah. Let's talk about the current environment and the trend to online shows. So how would you market that or how, how would you get involved with that being that you can charge for it, but you can't charge as much. So how does that work? It's a bit of a mix. Um, and you'll hear me give a different answer every week. And because it's changing every week, I was on a town hall yesterday with, uh, it was hosted by WME. It was a really nice thing that a lot of the corporate agents there were able to put together for mainly event planners rather than arts presenters and promoters. But uh, they let me sit in on it. And it was all about engaging audiences digitally and finding new platforms and how to monetize it in a respectful way. In the initial rollout of virtual content, it was all to benefit charities and not-for-profits, which was great. And they're still doing it. They're still finding new innovative ways of doing it. Last night, they aired that Parks and Rec special you know, on, on, on TV, which was awesome. It was great. It raised a lot of money. But you're going to start finding people need to monetize that because they, they need to find a way of making it a source of viable income. Some artists were doing it before the crisis broke out. They were using platforms like this uh, this company Stage It, which you, you're probably familiar with. I mean, they they were getting away with it by charging five bucks a ticket to come into sort of an intimate listening room show in a virtual venue. You're going to see a lot more things like that. Now, Facebook uh, just announced that they're going to allow artists to monetize these streams. That's kind of a game changer, whether you think it's a good game changer or not, it opens up kind of an interesting situation for these artists who have never been able to monetize something like that. So they're going to have to do it tastefully because people are not as liquid as they once were. Uh, A lot of people are losing their jobs, so they're not looking for paid entertainment, but eventually they're going to have to find a way to marry the two and make it something that can be monetized and not break the bank at the same time. Yeah. I think there's a disconnect there. There's only so much you can charge. You still want to make money. And, you know, I guess the possibilities are, are, are pretty wide in the fact that you can maybe bring in more people than you ever could in a venue. But the fact of the matter is, it's, there's still a lot of marketing involved in that. I've seen some major artists do some Facebook Live or some YouTube Live things where they get 30 people watching, 40 people, because they just thought, well, I can go on and people will know. And it doesn't work that way at all. Yeah. I think that they're also finding ways of making more band members come together, which is kind of one of the coolest things I've seen is how they're engaging a band where there may be six people, but they're all in different parts of the world and they're able to put together a session that's actually mixed to perfection. And it's not sounding terrible because that was always one of the big traditional problems with live streaming, especially if, if musicians were on other sides of the world, but they're, they're finding a way of doing it where it's unique. It's different. They may be releasing a song that you never really heard live. You maybe it's a song that 
was a B-side back in the 90s that's only now just coming out for the mainstream. There's really going to be a shift in how this is going to happen. But even when the world opens back up, which it's, it's now starting to little by little open up in phases, but even when there's a vaccine, God willing, and when things get back to normal, there's still going to be this concept of streaming shows and streaming live entertainment uh, in terms of music and theatrical and, and comedy platforms as well it's going to still exist to a, to an extent because people are always going to get tired. They're always going to want to have an evening in where they Netflix and chill, if you will. Um, you know, sports has been doing it since streaming became capable and they've been monetizing it ever since the beginning. And they're going to find a way of doing it. It's probably not going to cost more than $10 a ticket for quite some time. And that's even putting a high price tag on it. If you ask me, but $5 a ticket, you're probably going to be seeing that a little bit more and, they may have a component of it where it's, you know, two fifty of it goes to charity, uh, but they're gonna they're gonna find a happy medium because people are gonna get sick of seeing the same recorded concert over and over again. Your agency represents a lot of comedy acts, and it seems to me like live streaming is perfect for comedy more so than music. Music. One of the problems is when you get music on a small screen, everything seems smaller with it. And when you go see it live, it's bigger than life. So it's hard to reproduce that when you actually get on a screen. But with comedy, it doesn't matter. You don't need that so much. And as a matter of fact, it's better if it's more intimate. So I would think that that would actually work to the advantage of comedians. Yes. Uh, the, the one tricky thing that I've been hearing, however, with comics is the audience response component. Oh, yes. A lot of comics are really having a bit of trouble with there being no live laughter. Uh, I think comedy becomes so interactive in a live setting where you don't really think about that. But now where it's exclusively remote, comics are starting to scratch their heads a little bit when they're doing a set and they're not sure if the jokes are landing. A lot of comedy is so on the fly and that's really one of the problems I've seen with it. But with that said, you'll know after a while if you're doing something on Zoom or if you're doing something on Facebook Live, if it's hitting because people will be commenting, people will be engaging. Um, I talked about this with somebody a few weeks ago. They're, the comedy store in LA, they had one of, their, one of their weekly shows do a live stream with some of their core comics every week, just hopping on a live stream, no organized format, and just talking and joking about stupid things. And anybody who wants to join in could actively join that conversation. I logged in and you know, the next thing I knew it, I was interacting with comics that I've seen on TV that I always loved and they were there to take questions. They were there to joke around and you wouldn't have that. Um, so I think there's a marriage, but that's really the, that's really the one setback I've seen is the, is the audience interaction. You know, it was interesting last week was the NFL draft and I don't know if you're a fan or watched it at all, but what was interesting was when Roger Goodell was announcing the draft pick and behind him, he had the crowd, so to speak, which is multiplexed onto a screen and he was trying to get the crowd response. And it wasn't near what I think everybody expected it to be. And I'm not sure if it's a technical problem where in the multiplexing, there is only a few of those voices coming out rather than all of them or whatever. But, you know, you think if the NFL can't pull this off, this is really difficult. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. So football is <laughs> part of religion and it's part of... Um, part of your blood you you bleed green and gold and if you don't then you live in chicago uh but the point is is that sports is even more uniting and polarizing than music will ever be 
But one of the trends you were seeing before the COVID crisis really broke was an influx in foreign investment in nonlinear streaming, streaming platforms. Uh, literally billions upon billions of dollars were being poured into it in 2018 and 2019. And these new platforms were popping up like crazy. And you think to yourself as an agent, well, that would never happen in the world of music. And now here comes 2020 and you're starting to think about ways you can try to tap into some of those foreign investment dollars because it electrified the world of sports and really breathed a lot of new life into it. And um, NFL, luckily in the U.S., has really had legs for quite some time. But some of these other sports that were a little bit more obscure were losing it. So that's really a good model. You can follow you know, the, what's going on in the association or in other leagues to really help guide some of these decisions you make. And also when, when they start opening, you'll probably be able to see some music, music happening in the live sphere again. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So already it was very difficult to operate a venue. They were on a shoestring forever and it's getting worse. So I would imagine that when we finally go back to some sort of normality, there's going to be fewer venues. So what do you predict in terms of the losses that might happen? Sadly, we've seen a number of performing arts centers already um, have to cancel their entire 2021 season. Now that's September of this year leading into May of next year. So if you're thinking about this, they're canceling their entire lineup of shows very prematurely, largely because you know, they're having to furlough their entire staff. That's one thing, but they may be on a college campus as well, where the university isn't going to be able to sustain a lot of things. And as you and I both know, the arts are always the first thing to be cut yeah. in a time of financial crisis. You'll see it in, in promoters as well. You know, Live Nation, they made national headlines again this week because they, yes, they had to furlough so many employees, but then they also accepted this $500 billion investment from the Saudi Arabian public fund, which I'm obviously very invested in always knowing what's going on over there because so much of that money is pouring into the world of sports, like we were just talking about, and also in entertainment, especially in Saudi Arabia. Um, so you don't really know what's going to happen with some of these more brick and mortar venues because there's a lot more that goes into funding them and into, into keeping them going, but the not-for-profits are really going to be hit hard. And those are the conversations that are harder to have every day the arts organizations and even the performing arts centers and the classic vaudeville theaters that may be sitting down the street from you that you go to a show at once in a, once in a while. The venues that do survive now they have something new to think about and another expense in that now they have to make sure everything is clean and sanitized. What do you know about that? One of the things I'm hearing about a lot in uh, the webinars, I'm part of this organization, this great organization called Napama which is a consortium of agents, managers, artists, and even venues in the performing arts sphere. And one of the things they're talking about is, okay, if you change the ticket scaling in a venue to, let's say, 25% of the house, you know, taking a 1,000-seat venue and only making it 250 seats, yes, that solves the social distance aspect of the house itself. But what about concessions? What about bathrooms? What about the, ticket, the ticketing lines? And how is the ticketing software going to adapt to that in a way that's not going to crash and burn the entire place? Um, right now in Lithuania, I just read an article today, they're doing drive-in movie theater style concerts. But the problem is nobody's allowed to get out of their car to go use the restroom. <laughs> so you're thinking to yourself, there's, there's, there's some easy fixes, okay, to scaling it, but 
what about what about all the other nuts and bolts? You know, concessions are such a big stream of revenue for promoters and for for venues, and um, the scaling itself is going to limit the amount of money that a promoter can make on a show. You mentioned in your email to me that you were still busy. Does that mean you're still booking shows? Uh, we are, which is a blessing. I mean, and and when I say that, you know, obviously there's a lot of rescheduling and cancellations, of course, for everybody, but there are presenters out there especially internationally, that are still trying to keep things moving. Uh, we're working with a, new, a client of ours that does a lot on TikTok, we were talking about before, and we're speaking with a buyer in Southeast Asia where their markets are now starting to open up a lot more. Um, we're talking about bringing them over there to do a few shows. And um, we're talking to people about later parts of 2021 where there's a lot of planning taking place. You know, The, the organizations that are confident that they'll re- be able to remain solvent through this crisis they're actually doing a decent amount of booking. And the other part of being busy is just making sure that our artists are, are taken care of, that all of the paperwork is routed, that uh, we're staying friendly with our venues and people aren't killing each other because it's very easy for everybody to want to throw paper at each other and throw legal at each other in times like these. But thankfully we've been very, very lucky. And a lot of, a lot of the people that we work with have been very honorable and we've been able to reschedule. So what can artists do in the middle of this? They have lots of downtime, but what would you recommend to your acts, for instance? Content. You know, content is so key. And keeping with the brand that you've created and allowing that to really show its strength and flex its muscles at a time like this is really what's going to define your ability, especially if you're a DIY artist. Uh, you had on your show, I remember this woman, um, Laura, you know, she, she wrote a great book about branding. Yes. And um, I agree that if I had $1 left to spend, I'd probably spend it on branding because that's what allows something to stay put. And that's really what it's going to be is artists putting out continued content, even if it's free, getting ready, um, getting ready for the next wave of coming back. Um, continuing to find innovative ways of engaging their audiences. Live streaming is something that just about everybody is trying to do now, but really, really creating content. If they're able to stay solvent with their lives and really put food on the table, the next step is is content. But obviously taking care of your family comes first. One of the things, speaking of branding, one of the things I noticed is that when you look at your roster, every act is really well-defined and well-branded, where it didn't seem like there was any overlap between them. They were all distinct, but well, well-branded. well I mean, you look at the picture and, okay, I know what they're doing. So how much of that is you guys? We put together a roster on the biggest, the biggest goal here was to have something for everybody because we work with such a wide variety of presenters and we work with, we also do quite a bit of work in the corporate sphere where we're doing, um, we're doing shows for big corporations if they have a retreat or if they have a special event. We really wanted to have something for everybody that we could pick and choose from. Uh, and I mentioned uh, one of our partners, Fran Heller, earlier. She has taken a lot of time and care to personally work with our artists to differentiate them. And she's worked with our creative director on all of their marketing materials to make sure that it's defined so uniquely that it doesn't get pigeonholed with something else, especially on our own roster. Um, so I appreciate you noticing that and she'll appreciate that too, because that is something we take a lot of care with. Yeah, you can tell. 
what's the most fun part of the business for you? Uh, I really, I can't compare anything to going to see one of my acts perform live and to really, and to really be making a big achievement on something they've been working so hard for, for so long, watching an artist build slowly over time and do all the things that they think are right. And really just making it to that final stage is really something special. Um, but really sitting in the audience and just kind of looking up at all your artists, hard work and your hard work and seeing it happen is just so cool. Uh, it's really, there's really nothing like it. I got to say, um, for instance, the biggest, one of the biggest highlights of last year was uh, we worked with Lee rocker from the stray cats and stray cats reunited last year. And we were already in LA for a booking conference and we went up the hill to the Greek to see them perform as a band and just sitting in that crowd, you know, watching Lee, watching Brian Setzer and Stray Cats, just watching them back together. That was just one of these cool experiences where you're, you're looking up and you're saying, you're, you're looking around at each other saying, this is our job. This is what we get paid to do. Um, and it makes all of the horrendous paperwork and um, just sleepless nights worth it in those instances, because um, being an agent is a hundred percent less glamorous than it would ever sound. I never thought it was anything other than a tremendous amount of work. You've mentioned a couple times about the amount of paperwork. What don't people understand when it comes to that? I think a lot of it is being streamlined now because of the age we live in. You know, there's there's entire software companies that are that are uh, dedicated to creating innovative software for booking agencies, believe it or not. And uh, some of them are fairly successful because they know that agencies are dealing with a tremendous amount of transaction, transactional and miscellaneous paperwork that um, is from the artist side or from the venue side. You know, and some people really have embraced the newer era where there's a lot less paper and there's a lot more automated systems. And then some people still use a fax machine. Um, the, one of the industry stories is that, you know, if you ever want to book Art Artfunkel, you better have a fax machine because he only deals with his contracts and faxes. Um, but he's not my client, so I can't speak for him, but I think, yes, contracts are the biggest part of it, uh, obviously, and making sure that everything is in order with that part of the, part of the mystique of an agent being kind of a scumbag comes from that piece of it, you know, having to be so hard on those contracts to make sure that everything is enforced, but chances are if both sides are, you know, friendly and professional, you're, you're going to come a lot, uh, across a lot less strife than you'd think. Okay. Speaking of contracts, then do you have legal counsel on your staff? Uh, not in-house. It's not necessarily something we need for an agency, our size. Uh, when you get to have a number of different departments, especially when you're working in motion picture, television and literary, that's when you got to have a legal team, Kind of overseeing everything. Um, all the bigger agencies I ever worked for had in-house legal counsel, and um, it's just not something that we've we've needed. We've we've we have an attorney that we consult with regularly. You know that oversees a lot of our contracts at the start, but thankfully we haven't had to have one in-house just yet. Uh, I think what prompted the question was: Are these contracts pretty much the same from act to act? And if not, that would require that you're pretty up on your legal terminology to be able to look through them and understand what was going on. They are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty common across the board, unless we're talking about production style shows um, and comedy is a little bit easier 
uh, when instead when you're working with a big band or an international theatrical type show where there's a lot more uh, language that needs to be inserted. Uh, and that's that's pretty common, I'd say. What you need to be more familiar with is from what comes back, usually from the venue side. If a venue adds their own addendum to the end of a contract, uh, one of the the best phrases that's getting thrown around right now with the crisis is force majeure. Yeah. Usually you'll have your own force majeure clause and then the venue will say, you may think you do, but you're using ours if you want our money. And that's where it gets exciting is you just, you, you have to be reading these things little by little. Um, but also, you know, every artist has their own rider as well. Most of it's technical, but sometimes they even have their own legal language that they require in there for their own comfort. So it's a healthy mix. Um, agents, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a common joke you'll hear among a lot of agents that we wish we were lawyers, but we didn't want to go to school for that long. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. That, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I believe me. My sister, my sister's a, a, um, a neurologist at Harvard and I'm an agent in New York. And, um, you know, I like to think I work just as hard, but you know, she has a fancy degree she can throw at me. Yeah. <laughs> Is there an aspect of the business that you really don't like or you find is less fun than everything else? Yeah, I don't like disappointing people. Um, and I'm sure nobody does, but me personally, uh, I hate being the bearer of bad news. I'm a big believer that you don't call a client unless you have some piece of good news to give them. But I obviously won't keep anything from anybody. But uh, there's been a lot of difficult decisions and difficult conversations that have had to be had these past few weeks with everything that's going on and hasn't been fun, but it gets easier, I think, because everybody is going through the same thing and it's nobody's fault. But that's that's part of it that I don't enjoy. Um, we've been very, very blessed to have you know a nice company and I've been very blessed to have uh, great mentoring and leadership from the people above me at Bicoastal. Um, they've been very good about... Um, letting me have room to kind of stumble and grow a little bit over the years. And they've given me a lot of rope to hang myself with, if you will. And it's, it's been the nicest thing they've given me because it's allowed us to grow, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to be hard in any, any position you're in. It's just about knowing that there's a light at the end of it that really gets you excited to go to work every day and, you know, pick up a phone and talk to your artists and hear about what they're creating. What do you yourself specialize in? I primarily work with musicians. However, over the past couple of years, I've really gotten more involved in comedy. But I, my role is really to oversee the core agency staff in touring, routing, and uh, general effort of advancing a specific project. Uh, I, I personally work very heavily with some of our clients in global strategy as we're starting to get more and more international. Um, but our agency is primarily divided by territory geographically. Uh, and over the years, I've worked mostly in the West um, ever since I started, actually. You're based in the East Coast, but you work in the West. I do, yeah. yeah I didn't know I was going to be working in the West until my first day. And um, I didn't know anything about it. And you develop this mental map that you have to just have in your head at this whole time. But I love it. I love the West and I love the buyers and um, I love going out there yeah. more than anything. Yeah. Last question, Jack. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned from somebody or learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Uh, nobody and nothing is inaccessible to you in this business. That's the biggest fallacy of all is that 
somebody is unreachable, that something is out of reach from you and your career. Um, and if it is, then you're not doing it right or you're talking to the wrong people. Uh, nothing, nothing is out of reach. You know, I, I grew up in Wisconsin and I forced my way in, you know, to really just find my own path in this in, in New York, which was the polar opposite of where I grew up. And I think that that is something that anybody can do. They just have to believe that it's, it's not as daunting and it's not as far off as you can imagine. You can find out more about Jack and Bicoastal at bicoastalproductions.com. B-I-Coastalproductions, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.